Welcome to the SIAC podcast. I'm Natalie Pearson and I'm joined by Lakshmi Pamunchak, an Indonesian novelist, poet, food writer and journalist. Lakshmi works as a freelance journalist, language and editing consultant and writes for numerous local and international publications, including opinion articles for The Guardian. She is well known for her works of poetry and fiction, including both short stories and novels. Her first novel, Amber, or The Question of Red, won Germany's Liberaturprise. I'm sure I haven't pronounced that correctly, but Lakshmi will correct me. Uh, in 2016, and in 2012, she represented Indonesia in Poetry Parnassus, the biggest poetry festival in the UK in conjunction with the London Olympics. And she's also known as the author of the award-winning independent Good Food Guide series called the Jakarta Good Food Guide. Lakshmi has lived in Jakarta, Singapore, Perth, Melbourne and Berlin. We are fortunate to have her visiting Australia, where she will be launching her third novel, Fall Baby, here at the University of Sydney, and appearing as keynote speaker at the Indonesia Council Open Conference at the Australian National University in Canberra, where she will be speaking about art, freedom and morality in Indonesia. Lakshmi, welcome. Hi, Natalie. It's lovely to be here. Thank you for joining us. So, Lakshmi, you're in Sydney to launch Fall Baby, which is your third novel, and it continues the story of your best-selling first novel, Amber. So do we have to read Amber to understand Fall Baby, or can we just jump right in? Fall Baby is the sequel to my first novel, after all. So, of course, the ideal entry point would be to dive in after reading Amber, or The Question of Red, as the novel is called in English. And having read the first novel, of course, will give a more complete experience um, of the story and of history too. But I don't think it's essential to the reading experience as a whole. The protagonist of Four Babies, Trikandi, or Siri, the nickname she goes by, and her mother, Amber, who is the protagonist of The Question of Red, are very different. Different in that curiously and maddeningly paradoxical love and hate relationship where only daughters and mothers can share. And different in that they're also very similar, if you know what I mean. And so being there forever at loggerheads with uh, one another, they come from different generations after all. That said, at first, at the very beginning of the Amber Bisma series story, this wasn't my intention. Because in the earlier drafts of the first novel, there had always been the triple narratives of Amber, Siri, and Samuel, the Ambonese man who met Amber on her trip to Buru Island, flowing side by side. So uh, there were these alternating POVs. The mother-daughter story was always crucial to the story. But then the novel got bogged down. There was just too much going on, too many strands, too many love stories, all set against different timelines and historical periods and geographies. And of course, there was the added dimension of my being a baby novelist, you know, a beginner. And I just wasn't equipped for such a complicated first novel. So sometime in 2009, I decided to take Siri's story out of the narrative and save it for her own story one day because she merited it. Hers was a story of a different generation, a different world, different circumstances, different sensibilities, and different ways of processing history and of approaching family. And at any rate, when I was writing for Baby, my conviction that the two novels were very different was reinforced. And that gave me a lot of comfort. The Question of Red is a historical fiction. And when I started writing it almost 15 years ago, it took almost 10 years compared to the two and a half years it took to write for Baby. 
I wanted a big canvas at the time and I wanted to write something big, you know, the great Indonesian novel, mm. which is maybe a typical first time novelist instinct, right? You wanted to like write about everything you can fill a novel with <laughs> kind of thing. Whereas Four Baby is more intimate. It's the first time I dare use the first person, for instance. Previously, I've always feared and mistrusted the I unless it's in poetry. I don't know why that is, but it was just that way. Also, Four Baby is the story of another woman, Dara, the political activist, uh, Siri's former best friend with whom Shiri shares many complicated feelings in history with her dynamics with Siri, which uh, could be conflicting and complementary at the same time. It's very important to the story and had no part in the previous novel. And on a very fundamental level, Four Babies about art, about ways of seeing. It sheds a light on Amba and Bisma, yes, but it is its own story. There are many references to the past that Siri didn't know or was not part of. But I didn't think I don't think the reader necessarily needs to have read what was being referred to because Siri is already doing that for us. She's walking us through her discovery of that past and she's taking us along with her. Uh, and we're only as good as what she knows. Wonderful. So really she's discovering it at the same time as we are. So it mm-hmm. sounds like even though we would benefit from perhaps reading Amber or the question of Red first. We can also just leap right into Four Baby and discover it at the same time as Siri yes. is discovering it. So, Lakshmi, you yourself uh, split your time between Jakarta and Berlin. To what extent is the story of Siri, one of the main characters, as you've said, in Four Baby, with her smart and free-spirited approach to the world, autobiographical? Uh-huh. Aha! <laughs> I knew this question would come. <laughs> okay. okay, before I answer that, let me say this. Whenever I get asked that question, how much of this is based on your own experience or your own life, my answer is it can be all or nothing. Because the fiction or the novel is not a version of the facts. It is an entirely different way of seeing as a separate reality. It offers truth, but not the truth. Because in the end, I'm telling you stories. And uh, while much of my fiction does draw from my life, at the end of the day, a novel is a novel, unlike your own life, it is a thing that didn't exist before. It may be inspired by things that happened to you, by the material that allows you to tell a slightly different story than your own, by remaking it or telling it anew, but in the end it is fiction, and fiction has many doors and many ways in. Or even autobiography is as much of a fictional construct as fiction itself. Which door will it be today? I always ask myself, which part of my life do I want to understand today? And how? Which way in? So in this context, telling the truth and writing fiction, these are not two distinct acts. When you're writing a novel, they're bound in one single act, the act of translation. Making literature is an activity of transformation, I believe. Turning the raw material of authorial experience into readerly experience. Having said that, I will say that um, For Baby is the most personal of my work. It is, it has always been built a sequel to Amber, or The Question of Red, and this time it is a story of the daughter. Now, for those familiar with Amber, or The Question of Red, there's some foreshadowing toward the end of the novel. Uh, we know that Siri is a love baby of Amber and Bisma, and that after Amber and Bisma were separated in Jogja, Karta, in 1965, Amber found that she was pregnant. Then she met the German-American social scientist, Adelhard Eilers, who, out of his love for her, agreed to father her child. But in uh, Four Baby, we learn that Srikandi only knows about the truth of her origins close to the age of 50. And this part is important to me because I 
also found out that I was adopted late in life, not at almost 50, but at <laughs> 23 on the eve of my wedding from my then would-be husband, the father of my daughter. He passed away in 2013. So that was a, that was a shock to me. Parenthood and adoption have been a very important theme to me, therefore. It's been a light motif, especially as a young mother to a single daughter for many, many years. It, this interest in adoption isn't so much because it is my story too, but because the idea of how an adoption deeply affects not just both the adopted child and the adoptive parents, but also the biological parents, especially if the circumstances of the adoption are difficult, complicated or painful, as, uh, as in my case. And this is what interests me on the level of human relationships. It does raise questions such as allegiance, trust, the social gaze, the sort of fiction people resort to to justify a life. So you asked, is for baby uh, a story of adoption? Yes, it is, but it is about so much more. It's about parents and children, origins, differences, margins, love, passion, legitimacy and belonging. And in almost all my work, I think I've always told and retold the same fictions. Mm. Even though Four Baby is situated in an Indonesian context, in a German context, in a global context, it seems like these themes really resonate across all those international contexts and, and really at, the, at a profound individual level as well. One theme that does come through very strongly in Four Baby is that of women's relationships, particularly women's relationships with each other. Um, so you've got this sort of complicated friendship between mm -hmm. the two protagonists. You've got the themes relating to mothers and daughters. And elsewhere you've written about the plurality of women's desires, including this beautifully written and very provocative op-ed for The Guardian on Jakarta's swingers scene, which I have to admit I enjoyed reading. <laughs> what is it about these themes that interests you so much? First of all, I believe in woman and the autonomy of her mind and body. I believe in the beauty of children. When I was pregnant with my daughter Nadia, it gave me an immense pleasure to have the freedom to be thinking about what it means to be a woman, to be aware, I suppose, of the depths of the feminine experience as something that is located within the body, sensed from within. So when I started reading and writing poems in my early 30s, I gravitated toward poems that made me feel alive and elevated as a woman, not only through the small truths they illumine and what holds the solitary self together, what blows it apart, what makes a woman and what undoes her, but also through the many wonderful ways they've coaxed meaning from language. So I began, um, I, in hindsight, you know, to focus on stories that distill as well as enlarge women's affairs, relationships that sour, for instance, spouses who betray, children who rage and storm bodies that cave into age, difficult, mm. tempestuous, painful loves. Uh, because after all, we live in a culture that I feel so often radicalizes ordinary human experience and describes the colors of corrosion in, in that flat, one-dimensional language of dysfunction. And I wanted to talk about women the way women are. You know, they're resilient, they're vulnerable at the same time, they're malleable and intractable, they're healthy and also hurt. Women who create, who desire, nourish and love. Women who fight, defy, fail and hate. Women who age. So, you know, on another level, I told you already about my adoption, right, and, and what this realization meant to me. 
and how it set me up for a lifetime of thinking about the mother who birthed me and about the mother who raised me. But my interest in women has a lot to do also with growing up in Indonesia as a woman. It's living in Indonesia, which for all its ethos of diversity and tolerance, is largely still about negotiating how to guard and protect our independence and our right to be the subject of our own lives and how to adapt within reason to the expectations of a patriarchal society. So there's this paradox all the time. I grew up around strong women, for instance, as my role models. My paternal grandmother was born at the turn of the century, 1900, and hailed from West Sumatra. Now, her parents sent her to travel by herself at the age of 17. In Jakarta, she went to live with a distant relative to learn the ways of others. Now, even though Gosh. West Sumatra is a, yeah, it's, as you know, it's a largely matrilineal society, mm -hmm. right? With women invested with the authority to make big decisions for their families, unlike Javanese women. Uh, the sort of traveling experience my grandmother had was quite unheard of. You know, she then married and raised six children, of whom my father was the youngest. And see, this is, again, uh, where the paradox is. Though raised as an independent person and thinker, my grandmother, in the end, had to bow to patriarchal norms and become a homemaker. Now, my own mother is a tough and exceptional woman, too. She had an impressive education. She went to school in Holland and England. She speaks several languages, possesses a perfect command of English. She met my father, who studied in Holland and Germany in Europe and was quite free to travel across Europe as she wished. And that was how she met my father, who was 12 years older than she is. However, when she was in her last semester of a pharmacy degree at the University of London, my father, afraid to lose her, gave her an ultimatum. Marry him or else. Um, <laughs> rather than sticking to her own plans for a future, I mean, she only had one semester to go, right? What was she thinking? My mother... Did, so she didn't complain? No, 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 because she was afraid to embarrass her fiancé and her own parents. So she gave up her studies went home and married my father. See, I'm not saying she regretted marrying my father, but she could have just finished her degree and then married my father, right? I mean, it's right. not as if my father had a better choice. <laughs> he could have waited one more oh, semester. She could, he could have, but, you know, he was just, yeah. Anyway, for all her free, free spirit and, and, and intelligence, my mother is one of the smartest women I've known. Something deep inside her has internalized family values above and beyond her own desires. Being ethnically Javanese, she also held to that deep, abiding, unassailable respect and devotion to her parents. At the end of the day, she put duty to family above all else. Though she wouldn't dream of bringing shame upon them. Mm. So I grew up with this constant paradox, yeah? Strong, independent women who are allowed to pursue higher education and to an extent their own ambitions, only to have their freedom curtailed or truncated before they reach their full potential. And in some ways, and to an extent, I too experienced a similar double standard when I came home from Murdoch for my BA in, in, Perth. Nine, in Perth in 1993, I believe. Suddenly, there were so many prohibitions also at home. I was not allowed to do this or to do that. I felt assailed by rising social and religious conservatism, all in the name to conform to societal values. So writing, of course, gives me an independent space from which to reflect, you know, on, on these issues. Paradoxically, by stepping away from my subjective situation, writing gives me the benefit of distance, so I could write about these things from a, an in-between space. 
it's like an outsider looking in and also as an insider looking out. So it's a very privileged place. But I think that's one of the reasons I write. Um, I want to to make sense of this contradiction in mm. my life. Interesting that you, you've been wrestling with these very independent, educated women your, your mother and your grandmother, and now you yourself have a daughter. That in itself poses all sorts of interesting questions and challenges, I would imagine, yes. in seeing how those themes resonate across generations. Now, before we finish up, is it essential that aspiring authors, in general, and in an Indonesian context as well, have a literary agent. You've mentioned that you have a, a literary agent in New York, is that right? Uh, yeah, I have two. Uh, so okay. one in New York and the other was looking after just for baby, my third novel. She's based in Bangalore. Uh, it's hard to say whether it's important to have one or not, an agent. I mean, having an agent can be, yes, very useful, but especially the right agents who truly care about you and your work and the context of your novel and who will go the extra mile to promote your work, who you would also want to be a friend of, because there's nothing better than feeling that you're Asian and you get along very well. You can you know, sit down and have a meal and drinks um, from time to time. And having an agent who are familiar with a particular market can also be crucial, especially if that market doesn't know you or you don't know it. And a good agent will also tell you if the story you're planning to write or your writing will sell. They'll tell you what angles to focus on. It can be annoying at times because this is these are not the um, <laughs> obviously the, the things that you would want to to write. Uh, but your agent will tell you no, it will not sell. So find another story. Uh, and this has happened to me very very many times. <laughs> oh, oh yes, yeah, so that was going to be my next question. How many stories have you pitched that your literary agent has said no, it won't sell? Well, if it was for a baby, for instance, my New York agent said, no way. I mean, you're not going to write anything about art. Nobody's going to care. But my commissioning editor or my commissioning publisher was my German publisher. And they had wanted specifically a sequel to Amber or The Question of Red because they needed that continuity. They needed the German reader or my German readers to know uh, what went on before because it was very, very hard to market my, my book otherwise. Uh, so a sequel would have made sense. But then a sequel would mean going back um, to historical memory about, you know, about 1965 as well from the point of view of a, um, of a different generation. And then my Indonesian publisher said, no, no more 1965. <laughs> so at, at some point I was uh, faced with a situation where three of my agents and all publishers in three different continents wanted a different novel altogether from me. How do you navigate these uh, these three concerns and thoughts of the market and and stay true to your own impulses and and, and, and urges and, and and the integrity of your writerly authority? Right. So it was yeah, it was it was terrible. But then again, going back to how important it is to have an agent. Yes, it is important because sometimes, again, if they're the right agent, they they help land you a deal with great houses. <laughs> <laughs> you know, as what happened to me with Penguin, a random house, thanks to my agent in India. And they'll negotiate deals with foreign publishers for you. Uh, these are, of course, things that you cannot do your, you know, by, by yourself. Having said that, I still think it's important uh, to cultivate yourself, uh, build your own public persona, get people to like you and believe in, in you as opposed to just your work. Because at the end of the day, whoever your agent is, or whether or not you have one, you are your best promoter. Mm. Congratulations on Four Baby. It's a 
it's a beautiful looking book. I'm halfway through it and I'm really enjoying it. And I finally got my hands on um, a physical copy today. And I have to say it also looks very beautiful. Thank you. Lakshmi, I'd like to finish up by inviting you to read us an excerpt from Four Baby. I had two fathers, one who sired me and another who raised me. And they both died dutiful and lonely deaths. I didn't learn of the fact that there were two until the fall of 2006, when I was already 40. But by then, my birth father had been dead, or so my mother told me, for six years, in an island that had been his prison and his deliverance, his past and his future. She'd waited until the fall to tell me, waited four months after my adoptive father, the only father I'd ever known, died of a heart attack, and until she was able to travel to the said island to ascertain the time and manner of my other father's death. I was born in late summer and grew up oblivious of fall's supernal spell. For I was born in Jakarta, the capital city of Java, we know many seasons. There is the mating season, the divorce season, the season of typhoid and dengue. There is also the graft season, the pious season, the season of poison and bile. There's also the stupid season, which often encompasses the last three. Mostly, we alternate between dryness and rain, the latter often accompanied by an inlay of humidity that fills us at times with heavy, toneless sorrow. Yet we do not have fall unless what is meant by fall is a season in which a large number of heroes die in the battlefield. I don't even believe in official heroes because heroes are to be found in the everyday, in those who sacrifice and those who endure. My two fathers were both heroes and non-heroes. Just beautiful, Lakshmi. Thank you so much. I can't wait to finish reading Four Baby. Thank you for visiting Thank us. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to this podcast from the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre at the University of Sydney. For more podcasts like this, look up Sydney Southeast Asia Centre at soundcloud.com.